I think we can all agree that education is important. And I have said this quote on the show a lot, and it bears repeating. And that is, and I don't even remember who this quote is originally attributed to, but that is, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And that is often more true than ever in the current life that we are living and in the current world that we are in. And my guest today is really passionate about making higher education, a university education, accessible and giving opportunities to incredibly bright students in Africa for development and education around the world. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an incredible person who's trying to make a positive impact not only through their personal life, but with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Dr. Lydia Camunto Bosire. Dr. Bosire is the founder and CEO of 8B Education Investments, a financial and education technology platform specialized in lending to African students to attend world-class global universities and supporting them to succeed. 8B is on a mission to strengthen Africa's human capital by equipping the continent's future leaders and ecosystem builders to innovate, compete, and thrive in the knowledge economy of the 21st century. A Kenyan national, Lydia brings to the field of innovative finance her personal experience and over 18 years working on issues of international politics, development, and human rights. I loved this conversation with Dr. Basire. She is absolutely brilliant. And I am really excited for you guys to hear this episode today. But before I get to my conversation with Lydia, I just want to thank a couple partners of the show. Did you know that I have an ethical brand directory? That is actually what Chelsea used to start finding products for her boutique almost four years ago. Now Amazuma carries over 50 intentionally sourced brands and is the perfect one-stop shop for all of your gift giving needs. And as a thank you to the Still Being Molly community, she's offering 20% off with the code SHOPWITHMOLLY. Head to shopwithmolly.com for all the details. Are you one of my loyal listeners of the show? Have you ever wanted to sport some business with purpose swag? Well, guess what? You can now get my exclusive do something good with purpose on purpose tea through GoX. From boutiques to corporate events to family reunions and podcast show teas, GoX can design and print a tea for any use or occasion. Their experienced graphic design team, which is amazing, can work with you on your art or create a design from any inspiration. So whether you need 24 tees or 24,000 tees, GoX is here to provide you with retail quality fair trade garments with the highest quality screen printed graphics. Love their social mission, but you have your own screen printer or even you print yourself? No problem. You can purchase their blank, sustainable, eco-friendly tees at wholesale prices in bulk. Visit goxapparel.com forward slash wholesale to get started. And you can shop your exclusive business with purpose tea at goxapparel.com forward slash Molly Stillman and use the code podcast 20 for 20% off. Now on to my conversation with Lydia. Lydia, welcome to the show. I am so honored to have you on. How are you today? I'm very well, Molly. It's uh, snowing outside, but um, all is well. Oh, where? So where are you located? I'm currently in the Finger Lakes region of New York, very close to Cornell. Yeah. 
which is uh, a place where I ended up when I, I came to school in the US. But I ventured off many times, but always came back here. But that's where I am right now. And it's snowing. Well, I love I love a snow day. Um, I'm in North Carolina, so we don't get snow days very much. But when we do get one, I treasure it and my kids treasure it because we we are not in the Finger Lakes where you get snow a lot. So <laughs> now when you uh, I just have to ask this question, knowing that you are a native Kenyan, because I have a, a dear friend who's a native Kenyan who the first time he saw snow, he cried. <laughs> did, did you, Were you just like so elated the first time you saw snow or were you like, OK, this is not for me? <laughs> So I did decide it wasn't for me, uh, <laughs> but I I think it was more curious uh, yeah. my relationship with uh, with snow at that point. And I actually remember I was in Germany when I first encountered snow. Um, I was in I had uh, received a scholarship from Kenya. Went to high school in the UK, and the first Christmas I went to visit one of my new friends in Germany, and they had a serious case of snow, and it was a fascinating winter. <laughs> I love that. I love you call it a serious case of snow. It's like like a serious case of COVID. They had a serious case of snow. I love it. Yeah, um, but I, I have grown to love it, Molly, which is so yeah. interesting. Because, I, I, you know, there's that detachment of so what? So this is what snow is. But it's such a still time. It it's, is. Uh, when you're writing and you have a lot of sort of knowledge work to do, mm-hmm. I find that you know, if you can be in a warm place and you're observing it from a distance, uh, it's something that you can grow to like. And I, I am in that category of people who've grown to like snow. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm the same way. I just, there's something about when the snow is falling, everything is so peaceful. You have a fire in the fireplace. <laughs> like, it's just, it's magical. It's magical. Okay, well, Lydia, I am just, I, like I, I was saying before we started recording, I am a huge fan of your work. Uh, you are just brilliant. And I'm so excited to introduce you to my listeners. So will you do what all my guests do? And that's give us the Lydia 101. So tell us who you are, where you're from, and how you got to where you are today. So I am the founder and CEO of a company that's called 8B Education Investments. And 8B, the B stands for billion. And the question that HB is trying to answer is that what does Africa need to do in order to be fit for purpose Mm. in a world of 8 billion, in order to compete and innovate and thrive in a world of 8 billion? That's sort of the next population milestone. So people say, you know, let's have sustainable development goals by 2030. Let's achieve this and the other by 2063. You know, we were thinking about What does the world need to look like for that child who's born into that world of 8 billion so that they're able to be an equal? And that comes from a place where the experience of being an African in global spaces is where Africa is the place that people experiment on, save, (laughs) rescue, Mm -hmm. and yet it's a continent with enormous capacity if only there would be a linkage and a connection between that capacity and opportunities. And that's the business that I am in now of linking opportunity um, with that capacity in order to enable 8B to uh, Africa's population and young people to realize their potential. But the specifics of what we do, we're a financial technology company. We are financing the education of African students in global universities. I'm happy to put an asterisk on the global universities and return to it. Uh, But the big story there is that unless you have a critical mass of African 
students and who are future uh, ecosystem builders and leaders yeah. in global innovation ecosystems, you will still have in another 50 years a continuation of the current story where Africa is being acted on, saved and rescued, right? So mm-hmm. that's the, the focus of, of what we do. Um, the, the reason why higher education is our focus, and, and this is really important, uh, particularly for an audience that may not uh, be as familiar with Kenya or that think about the African context in from a charity perspective, um, we think that we need to be focusing on higher education because that's where you transform capacities. You need a lot of primary education and secondary education and literacy and you know all that work needs to be there. But if you can get scale at a tertiary education level, then you really rev the engine for expanding the economic pie. And that's really where we're putting our focus. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's uh, there's so much there that I want to unpack. But I want to kind of go back a little bit to kind of really take listeners down the path of how you got to that space and what really lit that fire within you to pursue this. Uh, you have your doctorate. I mean, you've just, you have, you're the smartest person I've probably ever spoken to. So <laughs> can you kind of take us back a little bit to, you know, your childhood growing up in Kenya and what led you to, I mean, eventually get your doctorate from uh, Oxford and to launch this business? Uh, you're so kind, Molly. Um, I was born in Kisi in Western Kenya. And before the recording started, you and I shared notes about our mutual love for Kenya. Yes. Um, Kisi is in Western Kenya. And um, for high school, I went to school in a place called Limuru, which is closer to Nairobi. And while I was there, there were, it was a national school. Um, so lots of upwardly mobile um, students with massive ambition and, and you know, incredible capacity. And what was really notable for me was how the people who would then pursue their potential to its limit were the people who had the financial means. And I did not belong in that category, right? Mm. You know, my parents were squarely middle class, uh, but I could never possibly afford to study outside outside the country. And then I won a scholarship for fifth and sixth form in the UK in one of the United World Colleges. The United World Colleges is a movement that really was at the core of the internationalization of higher education. Um, Back in the 60s, it was very, if you were a Swede uh, living in Nairobi, you needed to to be in the Swedish school, you Mm -hmm. know, for anybody to know what to do with you when you were going to university or an American in Lesotho. You had to be in the American school or it was, it was very balkanized. What the United World Colleges, um, together with the International School of Geneva did back then, was to have this vision that wouldn't it be nice if there is a way that 16 to 18 year olds could sit an exam that could be recognized anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And they created what became the International Baccalaureate. And the spirit of the International Baccalaureate um, lives on today. I mean, yeah. right now it's, it's everywhere. It's just yeah. about in every corner of the world you can find international baccalaureate schools. They might have, you know, different ways of approaching what they do, but the exam is the same, service is the same, and, and so on. And then another point to make about the United World Colleges, the particular one I went to, and this is a, a fun story, is that it was located in a place called St. Donuts Castle. This was a real <laughs> 
castle. And it was a castle that belonged to William Randolph Hearst, who was the rich man, one of the richest men, American men of his day, which was roughly 100 years ago. And he basically had the capacity to take bits and pieces of different castles he had seen around the world and create this amalgamation that became St. Donald's Castle, which was later bequeathed to to the public sector. And that's how our school ended up being there. So anyway, I, I ended up in this place where there was like a, you know, Hearst room and a Marion Davis room. Marion Davis happened to be his mistress back then. A long story that I can go into, but that's how I ended up coming from the village in Western Kenya and into um, the, the global spaces that I have been so fortunate to, to be in. After the fifth and sixth form and international baccalaureate qualification, I got a scholarship to go to Cornell and that brought me to the Finger Lakes. Um, and there I met the man who would later become my husband and finished Cornell, worked in international human rights and worked at the UN and the World Bank. And when in all these places that I had really wanted to go, these are the places where, Molly, I thought transformation happens. It's where I always imagined I would make the change that I want to see in the world. I realized that the bureaucracies were so big and vast. And while I was so lucky to do some amazing work um, and some work that actually stood out quite apart from what the bureaucracy was doing. And I'm happy to get into some of that if, if of interest. But I realized that what I needed was 10 more people like me in every space that I was in. It mm-hmm. wasn't enough for me to be the only African, the first African the, in all these spaces, yeah. because the international spaces, and not just in the international public sector, but also in business and in other places, they're not very inclusive spaces. And so I sat to, you know, I sat with that discomfort of what we need isn't me writing 10 times the number of talking points for the Secretary General. It is to actually have 10 more people like me in all the spaces that those 10 people can occupy, because that's how you will get the African footprint. That's how you will have sober policy that is actually responding to the needs um, of, of people who have the lived experience that I do. Yeah. That's how you will have businesses responding to the real needs and the, you know, you can preach people ethics of good business, but if they have the lived experience and they're leading this business, they'll do a better job. So after all that thinking, I decided to quit the UN and I did, and I founded HB Education Investments. That's what I'm currently working on. Wow. Lydia, that's such an incredible story. And I love, um, I mean, your passion just, um, it just exudes from every, from every part of your being for this. And uh, it's something that I also share a passion for is a, a passion for education. And there are a couple points that you said early on that I just really want to uh, take some time to talk a little bit about. And that is the first being this idea that you shared where Kenya, uh, or are you, you know, you saw, over and over again, both growing up and then especially when you came to the States and then you're in the UK and you saw that it's that whole idea of uh, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And that was one of the things that you really wanted to kind of break down that barrier with 8B. How have you kind of taken that and that idea and, and what are some of the things that you have implemented to to really uh, expand opportunity and and kind of break down that barrier to education and, you know, professional pursuits when talent is equally distributed, but opportunity currently isn't? Yeah, that's a a great question, Molly. So let me tell you a story. 
Let me tell you the story of how I got the first scholarship. I one day met a girl who was the younger sister of one of my classmates. There was no reason for me to meet her except, you know, serendipity. I ran into her and we traded notes about where my classmate, her older sister, was. And it turns out that she had gotten a scholarship to go to this United World College. And that idea that there was a place where you could get a scholarship to, and it was a place that was focused on inculcating notions of international understanding in young people, that was such an interesting idea. I parked it on the, in the back of my head. Fast forward some months, I go to a friend's house. In her house, they had the daily paper. In my house, we did not get the daily paper. And I opened the classifieds as I tended to do. I had finished my 12th grade. And there was an announcement for this school that that sister of my friend had mentioned. What are the chances right now? This is becoming a lottery that I would meet this girl who would say this name and then I would see the name randomly in this newspaper. And so I made an application um, for this scholarship. There were hundreds upon hundreds of students who applied just because people want to have a quality education. They don't always have it accessible within their borders and they all have ambition. And basically what the uh, application had said, you know, if you have a grade above this and you have leadership potential, apply. And so you can imagine many people applied. There was a rigorous application uh, process. There was an interview of many, many people of which there were in the end two scholarships and I got one of them. I bet you, Molly, the last 100 people within the interview process were just as capable academically as I was. The reason that I got it is something fairly random. I probably had a bigger smile at the interview. It has nothing after a while Mm. to do with, are you catching all the people that you could catch with this opportunity? It becomes a lottery. Now, I then continue winning lotteries and I get to Cornell, as I explained, and then I do some work and then I decide I want to do additional graduate school and I applied to Oxford. I got initial funding. Then I was uh, transitioning to do a PhD from one year to the next, Molly, there was no funding. Again, this becomes a lottery. Some people of the very many people who applied, a handful got funding and I wasn't one of the ones that got funding. And the reality of the fact that potential has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Your capacity to realize your potential anywhere has nothing to do with whether you're able to do it or not. It has to do with financing. And then, you know, I started asking all these whys. How do you do it when you're an American? Well, turns out there is something called student financing. It has been done quite badly. There is barely any underwriting. And, you know, you can get it (laughs) to go to a university that is a hole in the wall. And student financing has a terrible reputation in the U.S. But you know what it does? It's an equalizer Mm -hmm. for the people people, if we could do it well, and we know how to do it well, if we could do it well, then a person who is capable and gets an offer from a university is able to get that financing gap, right? Because the university never, it was never like zero. The university often gave a little money, Mm -hmm. but the gap between what they gave and what I needed to afford just was insurmountable. Mm -hmm. And the question for me was, why isn't there anybody in the world who can bet on the fact that this girl is going places and she will go to the kinds of places where she will be able to pay a $20,000 loan if we're able to give that to her today for her to do this master's program? Why is there nobody who could do that for me as a Kenyan, right? Wow. And yet, yeah. there, you know, if you were from the UK, from the EU, from the US, that opportunity was there. So it's those experiences that were in my parking lot. And then after, you know, I went to the bureaucracy and did the things that I did, it kept coming to me as a thing that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And when I was having that moment of why do I want more in the bureaucracy and why, you know, getting to that realization that I needed more people like me there 
all the why questions, you know, why are they not here? Well, they're not in the pipelines. Why are they not in the pipelines? Well, they're not attending. Are they just not smart enough to get to Colombia? Actually, no, they do get in. They're not funding it. Why are they not able to fund it? Well, there is no person financing them. So all those whys led me to creating an entity whose sole purpose is to address the key bottleneck, which is the financing bottleneck. And the belief here is that if we had financing as available for African students as it is available to a Chinese student or an Indian student or a Singaporean student, we would have a lot more African students in these universities and they would be in all the various workplaces. And Molly, think about all the things that we would be solving with that. All the challenges that we have with a country like the US with our you know, people graduate university without ever having any friend who looks different from them. If you had more, and you can say that about having more students of color who are American, but also more foreign students, then all those inherited stereotypes about Africans, you know, being whatever our president recently called them, you wouldn't have those ideas in your head because you would have lived with a real African. And, you know, actually, no, they're kind of normal people who work hard like everybody else and have the (laughs) same values and love their children, right? And then you would be able to have a very very different uh, narrative about Africa. And the last thing I'll say about this, Molly, is that narrative actually matters. It isn't that, oh, well, we think poorly of Africa and that has no consequence. No, it has real consequence. The real consequence is that we think of the African context as one with very high risk. And so when we're making investments there, we have a much higher barrier, a much higher threshold that an investment has to clear in order to be worthy of our time. We want a much higher return for any investment so as to address the risk that we are taking. Mm -hmm. But some of that is completely based on perception. I'll give you a final example on this. I have a friend who works with investors and he was planning a trip for investors to go to a country that I will not name. And the investors were very wishy-washy, American investors, very wishy-washy about the trip. You know, the, my friend was thinking about giving them, you know, opportunities. Here's what you can invest in, you know, come to the ground, see it. And they were very wishy-washy until he told them, um, you know, the key person we're going to be interacting with is the governor of the central bank. He's a former Goldman Sachs guy, you know. And then suddenly, the way he told me that story, the mood completely changed. It wasn't, can we go? It's, when can we go? Oh, that's fantastic. Why, Molly? Why? Mm -hmm. Because if he was at Goldman, he's like us. He's read the books that we've read. He's not a cattle herder who's running a country, which is what, by the way, people have told me to my face, what makes an African student who goes to Cornell not become a cattle herder? Well, because they don't become cattle herders. They do other things. They work in Goldman. And so that the idea that you can have entities across the world run by people who with whom we have relationships. We know that relationships matter, but we somehow pretend it doesn't matter when it comes to like running economies and governments. That's part of what we unlock. So there is opportunity both at the individual level, but also in at the level of what can we do with economies and with um, with issues. I'm going to take a quick break from my conversation with Lydia to thank our partners of the show. The first is The Lemonade Boutique, a women's clothing with a cause store. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I love artisan groups and for-purpose companies like Elegantes, Starfish Project, and Rahab's Rope. What I love about today's sponsor is that The Lemonade Boutique combines some of my favorite for-purpose companies, plus much more in one easy-to-shop online store. Plus, spend $29 and get free shipping. That is a great way to shop. Shop at thelemonadeboutique.com where your purchase empowers women to take life's lemons and make lemonade. Listeners of the podcast can save 15% by using the code PURPOSE15 at checkout. 
I want to thank another one of our sponsors of the show, and that is Simple Switch. Actually, Rachel Coyce, the founder of Simple Switch, was on the show back in the spring, so you may remember her. And I wanted her to actually tell you a little bit about what makes Simple Switch so incredibly awesome. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for letting me hop in on this episode really quick. We're an online marketplace for positive impact purchasing. So kind of a similar model to Amazon where you can shop online for things that you actually need. So like toilet paper, all the way up to nice gifts like jewelry or electronics. But every single product has some sort of environmental or social impact. So I'm really passionate about the the change that we can make just with our everyday shopping, as I know you are from all your amazing episodes on this show. And we'd love to offer a discount to your listeners because I know you guys are the exact right people for our marketplace. So if you go on simpleswitch.org and use the coupon code purchase with purpose, you'll get 20% off your first order. And that can be a cart that includes all your day-to-day needs, gifts, things you need for next year. Um, We can't wait to see you there. Thank you so much, Rachel. Now back to my conversation with Lydia. When you said narrative matters, I want to just repeat that over and over again is narrative does matter. It's so important. Our words matter. How we tell stories matter because those things begin to get imprinted in our minds, in our communities, in our culture, in our society. And when we begin to change the narratives and begin to tell things that are counter narrative to what we have been told, that's when we can unlearn the things that we have learned. And that's where change happens. And you're so right. And I, uh, you know, I will just echo those sentiments of like, Every t- And I think part of what you and I were talking about before we were recording is, is how I genuinely mean it when I say Kenya feels like a second home to me. And honestly, every time I go, part of, I'm like, I, I love my home. I love where I live. I love my community. But I'm like, there's just, it's a different uh, feeling that I have there. And it's because, I mean, I just wish Americans would know how kind and hospitable and warm and loving Kenyans are, and that has just baked into the culture. And uh, I mean, one of my favorite things is I can, I can meet a new friend in Kenya and like immediately she's fixing me uh, some tea and we're sitting down and we're having these conversations, these deep conversations about our lives and being moms and, you know, being wives or what, you know, it just, it's like you leave and then all of a sudden it's like you have this, this new family member. And And they're just, I mean, some of the most brilliant thinkers and leaders. And um, I just, I love it so much there. And uh, this one quick story that I'm like, this is the most like, we don't do this in the US. And I wish we did. But I remember we were... um, uh, we were heading somewhere and what, m- one of my Kenyan friends was uh, in the car next to me. I'm in the back seat, and we were heading somewhere. We were trying to get directions. And so we had, I had had my friend call the person of where we were going. And I was like, can you guys coordinate getting there? And so they're, they're having a conversation on the phone. They're speaking in Kikuyu together and they're having a conversation. And I Based on what I'm hearing in this conversation, it sounded like they've known each other their entire lives, like just their entire lives. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they get off the phone. I was like, do you know her? And she's like, uh, no, but I do now. Like, <laughs> like, and we're going to uh, she's going to come over for dinner next week. And I'm like, we we don't do that here in the U.S. No, that's so important. Molly. <laughs> I, I feel like there is uh, there is definitely the, 
you know, the narrative being lost about what's going on out there. And, you yeah. know, there is some, there's a number of um, uh, online and social media properties that are um, spending time in a much, much uh, very entertaining way, you know, <laughs> demonstrating what it is that the West thinks Africa is versus what it is. Yeah. You know, the fact that Nairobi is a vibrant city. It really is. Right. And, and and yes, you do have rolling farmland, but that's kind of like upstate New York or like Iowa and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the people in this communities have exactly the same ambitions as we do. Yeah. My worry, Molly, is that we have for historical reasons, but, you know, therefore we ought to revise it because we've moved on. But we have for historical reasons related to the African continent from a register of charity. Therefore, we project into the world Africans as people who need to be helped. And right. I keep on coming back to this, to be rescued. And we are the saviors and to be acted upon and experimented upon. I mean, the number of uh, lemonade stands across, you know, any sunny day with people raising money to save Africa is countless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we arrogate to ourselves that capacity to define what is needed in particular communities to to move them forward. Yeah. Well, actually, like any community anywhere, they need a bigger economic pie, which means yes. very capable people getting the right opportunities, getting the right connections to capital, setting up industry, creating jobs. So I end up in a gentle battle, but a battle nonetheless, Molly, with the people who tell me that what I'm doing is not at the bottom of the pyramid enough. Mm. You know, we want to give loans to basket weavers. And I say, I absolutely want you to fund basket weavers, but realize that the basket weavers, the you know, 50 of them are selling to the same local economy where everybody's dollars haven't increased. I want you to consider spending that money loaning to the woman who will go to NYU, get an MBA, get connections to venture and other capital, create a woven basket industry that takes those baskets from her hometown to Target and Tesco and Walmart, that is when you've created a bigger pie. And yes, it doesn't feel as good because it's not 50 people. Your annual report will say one person. And by the way, the impact is not happening for my annual report in 12 months, right? Mm. While giving a loan to 50 basket weavers is something that you can, you know, say, done, dusted, feel good, go home and rest. But we have to have this bigger vision. And I am wanting that. And so it, it, it really... And, and the last thing to say about this, the reason I call it a gentle battle is because it, it actually isn't a mutually exclusive thing, Molly. Yeah. You can yeah. have both the basket weavers and the people who are taking yes. those baskets to Tesco and, and, and Walmart. So let us think of it in both ways. And by the way, in terms of an investment strategy, because, you know, we, we fund our basket weavers through microcredit, um, the, the, the ticket size is bigger for the single woman. But actually, yep. the risk is also smaller because a woman going to NYU is certainly going to be paying you back, right? So that's what I'm working on. It's the mindset shift. How do we get people to shift those mindsets? But let me say one more thing, Molly, that brings it home to the US. The narrative shift is important here because particularly communities of color have, you know, what others have called the, uh, I don't know if the word is tyranny, but the tyranny of low expectations where Mm. young people with as much potential um, who are in the Bronx as the young people in the Upper East Side are faced with very low expectations. Nobody expects very much of them, right? And, you know, these are people who are uh, many of them will be Afro-descendants, right? So when I think about Africa, I think of Africa and the continent, but I think of the global African experience writ large, yeah. where there is that the projection onto the people lower expectations and people don't then rise above that. The exceptions do, but most don't. And that is a failure 
for all of us because more people realizing the potential is more vibrant economies, more vibrant culture, just a, a better story for all yeah. of us. So, you know, in our own small way, brick by brick, student by student, what we're wanting to do is provide that capacity for the students to realize their potential. They will end up in your, you know, in your East Coast college. They will end up in your workplace. They will end up, you know, in all the spaces where they can end up and suddenly it becomes normalized that mm-hmm. people of color and people of African descent and people from Africa are just like everyone else. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. Preach, Lydia. Preach. You're having church up in this podcast today. Yes, that is. Uh, and that actually, you basically answered the other question that I was going to ask. And that was just, you had mentioned at the beginning, um, it kind of, again, related to the narrative thing, but just about how for so many people, they they have in their mind that Africa is this place that needs to be saved. And there's this, uh, you know, sometimes people call it the white savior mentality. But it also comes from um, people of color who have just grown up in, uh, you know, middle or upper, upper class. It's just kind of this Western American savior mentality and that they they can't uh, kind of differentiate between, um, you know, charity and then also just investment and creating opportunity. And so I, I, I'm really appreciative that you spoke to that. And I, I also, too, just echoing how you you talked about we don't have to have this um, either or that it doesn't have to be charity or education investment. Like it can be both. And I mean, that's applicable in so many things in our lives that we sometimes feel like we have to pick one or the other. And it's like, no, no, that's we weren't created to do that. We can do we can do multiple things at the same time. But I I love in particular that you keep referring to all of this as an investment. And so for people in the business world, you know, I, I have a friend who is is working with or she's created a startup. And so she's kind of in that phase right now of looking for investments. And so she's seeking out venture capitalists and angel investors and those kinds of things. And I love how you have kind of taken a similar idea of seeking investors in a person. And it's not necessarily investing in a business, but you're investing in like you're saying to somebody, I see this potential in you. I see this talent in you. And I'm investing in your education for a greater purpose. And so can you speak a little bit more to that? This idea of really almost kind of thinking of it like a business. Yeah. So I think there are two levels to that question, Molly. The first is that 8B is a company, not an NGO. And the reason for that is that I spent a lot of time um, in 2018 wandering across the wilderness of the foundation and NGO sector and found that there isn't enough innovation to support what we wanted to do as a not-for-profit. Because there, the question would be, why would I be investing in one woman to go to NYU and not 50 basket weavers, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, therefore, that's the first sense of that term investment. Quite literally, we are a business and we raised our first round last year in 2019. And we are back in the market raising in January um, for, you know, growing what we're offering. And what we're offering is both the capacity to lend to students, the sourcing of the lending capital, the uh, connection of students to information. Because, you know, as I said, I found out about my first school 
by looking at a classified page in a newsletter. That ought not be the way that someone finds yeah. out about yeah. the availability of information. Granted, that was a long time ago, but it isn't dramatically different, right? right. Today, your father can pay an agency, they can get more information about what is Cornell. But, you know, what if you don't have a father who can pay for that, right? And, you know, right. in this age that we're in, that ought not be the situation. So, you know, we're building a company that does all these things and builds this sticky community of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, super prime Africans. And I'll put an asterisk on that and return to it. And to do that, we're, you know, we're raising financial, you know, regular investment capital like anybody does. And right. you, to the plain vanilla way to think about this is student financing. You know, we're a student financing company, but with a twist. The twist being that the impact is baked and, you know, primary and central to what we do. And the other twist is that it's Africa and not US, right? And therefore, people have to wrap their heads around this, right? So that is the first sense of investment. The second sense of investment is, is what you said, which is to think about what the students are doing as increasing their productive capacity, right? right? Because when I am an undergrad, I, you know, nobody knows what I will be able to do. But, you know, you can look at where people are going based on a number of factors and determine that this person is, a, is going places and, you know, and look at another set of criteria or another set of indicators and say, no, this person might struggle to get a C, right? And, and in a world where we're judged by that, then, you know, you can make a choice about where you're going to be going. The reason why it, it's important to think about the investment in the second way, Molly, is that the students we lend to don't have a FICO score, Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about a range of other variables that together add up to the equivalent of someone's FICO score. What is their potential future credit worthiness that makes it okay for me to give them twenty thousand dollars today when they're twenty three or eighteen? Right. So that know that I can make a projection, but when they're about 25 or 27, they will be earning this because this is what they're studying. This is where they're coming from. This is the school they were in. This is with their grades. So all those things are really important. So we really think about what we're doing from in the, in the investment register, um, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'm so glad that you made that point about how and that's one of the things we didn't touch too much on, but that you did work in the nonprofit sector and you worked with NGOs for many years. And uh, you stated something that I have heard very frequently and um, just or actually not very frequently, but have heard a couple of times in the last few years. And that's this idea that that it's not that nonprofits are bad. It's not that NGOs are bad, but you said there's not enough innovation in the nonprofit space. And that's one of the whole reasons I have a podcast called Business with Purpose. And it's, it's that this idea that business can be used as a force for good like a nonprofit. Because when you're a nonprofit, again, I, I have served on the boards with nonprofits. I support nonprofits. I, I love nonprofits. But Overall, most nonprofits don't innovate because they just don't have to. But businesses have to innovate. I mean, think about what has happened, what happened in 2020, where for many businesses, myself included, my husband's business included, our traditional, well, I guess, non-traditional, traditional business models got completely upended when all of a sudden we're working from home full time. And so what did we have to do as business owners? We had to pivot. And so we heard this word over and over from so many business owners throughout the year was we have to pivot, we have to pivot, we have to pivot in order to sustain ourselves. So you have to innovate where you just don't see that as much in the nonprofit space. And so 
I, I just love that that's something that is baked into what you're doing is this idea of innovation, because innovation is what is a huge part of creating progress. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point you make. I think of society as having different roles. And so, you know, where my biggest frustration has come from is the philanthropic sector whose accountability is such that they are, in fact, it's their job to enable innovation. Right. So I will put business to one side and return to it, but let's focus on, on the, the not-for-profit space. Um, so by the time an NGO is doing what they're doing, they already got resources, some mostly earmarked, sometimes not, to do the thing they're doing. And to be able to turn from the thing they're doing, they kind of need to go back and you know get some clearance. Right. But that is a fairly, it's, it can't, it's not too complicated. The incentives are just different. You're not paid more for being innovative, right? You've already chosen the bit of the, 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 the world problem pie that you're tackling. Yeah. And you sort of go at it. Nobody is checking on you whether you're doing it. And, and I have a whole bunch of other issues with that. But let's put that to one side. So, you know, what is happening is that um, the, the philanthropic sector, which is Let's talk about foundations because philanthropic feels very wishy-washy. Foundations, and actually wrote an article about this on Stanford Social Innovation Review this summer. Foundations are failing in that task of mm -hmm. innovating because they are, you know, they have decided what they do and they just proceed and continue doing it, even when, in fact, the reason why they have a major tax break is that they should be underwriting the new things, the things that right. don't fall within the box, the things that are not coming just from their immediate network, but right. they, they ought to be supporting things that are coming from far afield because that yeah. is what they ought to do. Government can't quite do that with the same flexibility because, you know, we elect them and we can kick them out when we want. Businesses have to report and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that's constrained. But philanthropy has failed in its, and largely failed. Yeah. And there are people who are smarter than me who are saying this, like, you know, Rob Wright of Stanford and so on. So, you know, there's a lot there. But let's go back to business. I love the fact that increasingly there is fire under the feet of business to do more. I don't think that they naturally do better, Molly. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when someone is spending their day working in British Petroleum and in the evening they're writing tweets about climate change, I'm sorry, I just don't think that that's good enough. Um, I yeah. think there is a lot of that. There is a lot of impact washing in the business side mm. where you are a lot, you know, what Anand Giridhar does in his book, Winners Take All, calls you take more with one hand than you give with the other, but we're all celebrating the hand with which you're giving because it's in philanthropy. But we pretend that we're not seeing this other part from where you're giving lower wages to people and you're, you know, you're not paying enough taxes. And, you know, there's a whole big area there. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, it is a wonderful thing when you see businesses taking on some of the issues, if they do so with enough modesty, which is just because I know how to build Microsoft doesn't mean I know enough about vaccines you know thank god for people like bill gates they're learning right and yeah they are, they're willing to say where they don't know and to bring in the expertise where they don't have it but it as it, you know I'm, I'm sort of going on a whole range of tangents here with a great dissatisfaction about the way that people are are, are responding <laughs> but also hopeful that there's enough pressure going on the the business side to both help them to innovate and do more, but also make their core business better, right? Yeah. Because ultimately that is the bigger pie, the core business. And the moment that the core business is big tobacco, I'm sorry, we're still harming the world. We're still yeah. harming people, right? So yep. that, that is all really important to, to, to keep in mind. Yeah. Oh man, there's so many good points there. I could talk to you all day. Um, a couple quick questions before we get to the get to know you round. 
So, you know, obviously you you kind of officially launched last year, correct? And you're kind of now entering into, well, I guess now we'll learn this airs in 2021. So uh, kind of almost two years ago now. So how does it just kind of the real quick kind of nitty gritty, say you connect with someone you know, in Kenya or in uh, Nigeria or wherever that wants to attend, like, how does it work for them to work with you and and yeah. get that investment? Yeah. So the the quickest way to describe this is, as I said, it's um, good old student finance. So two pathways. One is a student comes on our website and there are thousands of students who are looking for money. So the, the problem is never finding the students. The problem is finding the money. So a, a student has an offer from Cornell. They already made an application. They got an offer. Cornell gave them half their money. They need another, you know, the remaining money. They come on our website. They fill in information. When we have an application window open, meaning we are now evaluating, um, that's when we are really taking, soliciting students to join. But they can also just provide information and then we'll let them know when the window for funding is open. So they, they, their information is provided to us. You know, a lot of information that you can imagine we want to review because we don't have a FICO score. Or, um, and then we evaluate this and then the student, uh, we check that the student is enrolled as they say they are. Then we have a whole back office that makes sure that the application process is in line with regulations, you know, in the, in the US, you know, they're getting the disclosures, they know what they're going to be paying and how. And then that back office is also responsible for remitting the money that the student is borrowing to the school, yeah. right? So it goes directly to the school. But the whole application process takes place within the website. The second modality is that we have partnerships with some schools where the school is our partner in the sense that we fund the students that they already have given offers to and that are already enrolling in the school. Mm, So there the student doesn't apply from the world. The student, basically the school tells us here are the students that that are African and that we are looking to supplement their financing and then we lend to those students. So those are the two modalities by which students find us. The big the big challenge, of course, is that when they're applying, is there enough money in the bank to meet the demand? And that's a right. huge, huge gap. You know, yeah. there is roughly $25 billion in financing gap for African students every year. Um, there isn't, you know, the most generous scholarship program that was put in place by Ford Foundation back in the early 2000s, it ended in 2013, had all of $450 million over a 10-year period. That doesn't even start to cover a fraction of what is being demanded by African students globally, right? So mm. there just isn't enough money. And what we're hoping is that we are slowly getting more people to be comfortable with the narrative that you can actually be lending to African students who are going to global universities and they're a good bet. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. And then what is sort of on the horizon? What are you dreaming and what is your vision for 8B in 2021 and beyond? So we want to get more college partners. So the way the college partnership works is uh, 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 that the college will give us their students. But in exchange for that, uh, the colleges agree to create a risk reserve. So, you know, roughly speaking, for every $100 we lend to the students, we will only remit $80 to the university and $20 will sit somewhere in a pool that reduces the risk should the student default, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What that does is that it reduces the risk for the person who 
is giving us the money that we lent to the students in the first place. So we want more colleges in that arrangement. Um, we're also writing a big op-ed with a couple of um, uh, ministers of education on the African continent calling for a financing facility for African students because we need the debt, right? You need the money, the $100 to go to a student. You need to get it from somewhere. Um, and right now, people lend very easily to microcredit institutions, but they right. don't lend to communities like us. So we need to to have you know that credit line, that financing. We need more of that. So that's what's in the horizon. It's really a lot of knocking on doors and 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 telling the story and and looking for people who are wanting to look at Africa differently and at the interdependence of the world differently, where Africa is an active participant. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I am uh, really excited to just follow along with your journey uh, with 8B and to see the impact that I know is going to come from the work that you're doing and the investments that you're making in these brilliant young leaders and uh, the legacy and the ripple effect of that in the long term is going to be just amazing. And it's going to outlive all of us. And uh, I'm just I'm 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 just elated to hear all about it. And so thank you for sharing that. And um, uh, Lydia, now is the portion of the show where we just transition just a little bit to ask some fun get to know you questions. So uh, Lydia, are you ready for the get to know you round? I am absolutely ready for the get to know me round. Okay. Question number one is what person you don't have to know them personally, but if you do, that's fine. What person has influenced you the most? Wow. Um, there are very many people who have influenced me. I, I really like the stories of people who get vulnerable um, and share that as they are trying to do what they do in the world. Um, and a person who falls in that category is Oprah. So this is really cliche. No, but, it's not uh, cliche at all. <laughs> Oprah. Yes, I will, I will put out the Oprah. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, what song do you have to sing along with every time you hear it? Uh, so this is um, uh, my, I have a six-year-old daughter and she just can't get over Frozen. So I feel like, um, you know, any ballad that is coming from the Frozen universe is is a sing-along. Absolutely. Love sing-along. is an open door. Yeah, I have a seven-year-old. We, we, we knew the whole, not just sing, but you have to like do the whole, you know, how is it called? The cold never bothered me anyway. Yeah, um, the cold yeah, never like, bothered me anyway. Yeah. Um, my daughter went through a phase. Well, she still loves Frozen and sings it all the time. But she went through a phase for a little while um, with Do You Want to Build a Snowman? Where she would walk up to the door and do the knock, 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 knock. And then Do You Want to Build a Snowman? But every time she would do that, which was a lot, my dog would immediately think somebody's at the door. So then my dog would start barking and it just became this like vicious cycle of my daughter knocking, my dog barking. And finally, I was like, find a different song. No, no. <laughs> I love that. It's a symphony. Huh? It really is. It really was. It was just this cacophony of sounds. Um, yeah. Okay. If you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life, what would you pick? So that's really easy. So you've been to Kenya, so you know that we love our kale. Yes. Um, And from the part of Kenya I'm from, the thing that I grew up eating a lot and I still love today is kale and avocado. I could have kale and avocado every single day for a whole year and not blink. 
I could eat avocados for every meal in various forms every day for my life as well. So I very much, yes. And uh, my favorite Kenyan food is uh, chapati, for sure. I know it's like... But it's so time consuming to make. It is. It is. I have tried to make it with my kids and and like my Kenyan friends can make it. I mean, it's time consuming, but they make it just like without even blinking. And I try to make it with my kids and it takes me five and a half hours. (laughs) It's just, oh, but so good. But yes, kale and avocado. Yum. Got to get some seasoning on there. You could put an egg on there. Oh, so good. I like it. Um, When, because I'm assuming before COVID, we're going to go, we're going to go before COVID. You probably did some travel. You've traveled to a lot of different places. When you get home, what is the first thing you do when you get home? So, that is a very good question. Um, often is to hug those close to me. Uh, but I also think because I now have little kids, my and I think the travel repertoire was different pre-kids and post-kids. Pre-kids, probably, you know, throw my shoes and like flop on the bed and be glad I'm out of, you know, the... the, the <laughs> airport and the rest of it but now it's more like there has to be a gift so you know did I remember to get something like a souvenir (laughs) Um, so hug, there has to be an exchange of gifts that's something that I I if there's something I'm missing in the non-traveling days of COVID is that there are many things we were planning that we won't be able to do and you always want to get a Christmas ornament from a place where you've been and you want to you know just as part of the story and so yeah I think a gift uh, is you know give and hug I love that. I love that. Yes, I'm my I'm the same way. Um, okay. And then this is the last question I have. And this is the question I ask all my guests. And that is, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? So it is all I've known. I think everything that I have done has been with purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from, you know, working on HIV AIDS activism when I was still a teenager, um, freshman in college, to going into the bureaucracy and uh, doing the things that I did there to currently running financial technology company. Um, Impact and purpose is central to what I do. Um, What I wish is for more businesses to centralize purpose as opposed to add it in the PR department. So make it core to strategy, right? You know, what we do every day is thinking about how do we get more students and more students both makes the company grow, but also makes, you know, grows the number of um, highly educated Africans who can transform the ecosystems in which they find themselves. So I would love to see more companies bring more of the purpose into the center of their strategy, but it's, it's central to what I do. And it's, it's, it's everything. Yeah. Lydia, this has been such a joy and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule to chat with me. And I am just so encouraged by the work you're doing. And uh, I am cheering you on. You have a fan in me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Molly. I'm so grateful for your time too. Friend, I would love to know what you loved about this episode or something that you learned. If you do, let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. Another thank you to our partners of the show, Simple Switch, The Lemonade Boutique, Amazuma, and GoX Apparel. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first time listener, welcome. Be sure to check out the archives for past shows featuring incredible entrepreneurs who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you're a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. And thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button. Clicking that button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to leave a review of the show? Leaving a review helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. This show is produced by the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.